0: We had that culture before we came here and have it stripped of us. So our ability to reculturize ourselves around our various skin colors instead of our cultural groups is oppressive. You're telling us that you are refusing to see part of our identity that you forced us to have.
1: Welcome to Invisible Not Broken. Today's episode was recorded back in the summer of 2020. We have been resurfacing some of our favorite episodes recently, and this one remains as one of our most important ones. We touch on a wide range of topics covering politics, the media, to the medical system, all centered around what it means to be Black in America and actions a non-Black person can take. Our host, Monica, is joined by Tino Oboyami paul a disability activist, founder of Everywhere Accessible, and much, much more.
2: I just want to say our tagline, I don't think it's ever been more important. And when I say be kind, be kind in the way that you can be kind, be gentle in the way that works for you. And when I say be a badass, we're specifically talking about that today. We are talking about wherever you are in your mental health journey, your physical health journey. We are talking about how you can still be a badass. All right.
0: Over to you, my friend. Hi, my name is Tini Obani-Paul. Among other things, I'm the founder of an organization called Everywhere Accessible because I believe that since we're 20% of the world, invisibly disabled or visibly disabled people, we should be able to access the whole world just like anybody else, but not just accessible in terms of being able to get into places, but having access to opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I'm on- Twitter is at Tinu, and I'm also a disability activist. If you go to our show notes, I'm going to have
2: everything right there. So I will have how to follow Tinu, and I will have a link directly to her website and to her funding site. And you are someone who has dealt with disability, with chronic pain, with cancer. So you are uniquely at a very wonderful intersection to tell us about how to appropriately express our rage. And channel our rage in a good direction that is
0: useful in moving things forward yes definitely it's been on my mind a lot because when these kinds of things happen like with Breonna Taylor's death ending up with George Floyd's murder and I should say Breonna Taylor also her death as well was a murder which sparked a series of uprisings across the country and pretty soon across the world so what is and taking place is what usually takes place when these kinds of things happen on a smaller scale. The section of my white friends and acquaintances and colleagues that come into consciousness about the problems that Black people are facing will come to me and say, first, how sorry they are, which is great. See how I'm doing, which is also great. And then they ask me the problematic question, what should I be doing now? The intent of the question is great because it's telling me, this person really cares. It's not just lip service. They want to take an action, which is fabulous. So I train myself to be ready to give tips on, okay, you could do this thing. You could do that thing. Here's what we need from white people. Because the list grows longer and longer now that more and more people are getting higher consciousnesses of what's been going on with racism, especially in the last 30 years, the list changes and the homework is different. And I have to keep up with all of those things for these occurrences that are happening periodically. And then finally, this time i said, this is a mess. Don't ask me what you should do because it's an additional emotional labor that I have to go through. Not that it's that big of an annoyance because you want to love and comfort your friends and give them the right way to start. But Being Black in America is to be in this constant state of too muchness that you have to manage all the time. So when we get to the point of outrage at the protests that everybody seems to be feeling, what you're feeling as a white person when you're just coming to consciousness of what's going on is the level that we're usually at all the time emotionally. So imagine you're at that state. And then all of a sudden, hundreds of requests are coming into you to explain your state to them and then give them tools to help you. The problem is emotional labor and the burden that it creates for us to have to walk you through this. I want to come up with a system to get white people to sincerely not only express the fact that they feel our pain and that you embrace us getting justice, but so that we can move forward in kind of a more connected manner and not have this issue of the emotional burden come between us. This is the reason why it's a big deal. The country, the government, the institutions treat us like we're in service to the state when it's supposed to be in service to us. We pay taxes like everybody else. So when our friends come to us to build on that unexpected service as well, it just feels like, okay, here's another thing I'm enslaved to. And it's a strange word for me to use, but that is what it feels like. To take this back over to a positive note, I have noticed that a lot of my friends figured out how to approach me with these things. For example, for this show that I'm honored to participate in, you came to me and said, here's what I have. What can we do with it? You came to me with an idea that was already completely formed. You told me what you wanted to happen. And gave me some suggestions. It didn't require me to do any thinking. It didn't require me to come up with things. It didn't require me to make any additional decisions. So it was easy for me to say, yes, let's do this and let's work on it together. That made me feel like you thought I was equal to you. Where when people come to you and say, what should I do? That makes me feel like I'm in the servile position, which Mm. I'm tired of feeling like that. And I don't know why it's took so long in my mind to find a way to say that. That's part of the problem. We Black people spend a lot of time trying to word things so we don't hurt white people's feelings. But that's just lying in a long way and it's taking us backwards instead of forwards. If we had been more honest, I think once we start to have interpersonal relationships with white people, I think we would have got to the point of where we are right now sooner, not to play the blame game. But we, Black people, need to be more honest with our white friends and stop trying to save our friendships with these lies of comfort that we give white people. When you approach us in these times, think this question to yourself What is my privilege in relation to the typical Black person that I know? Because I mean, you're in technology. That's a different dynamic than if both of you are, say, waitresses. That's a different dynamic if both of you are teachers. It's a different dynamic if both of you are lawyers. In my capacity and in my privilege in the positions that I have, not just in the work, but just in the world in general, what is my privilege and how can I convert part of it or leverage part of it to bring opportunity to Black people? It can be time. It can be the ability to talk to someone when they need to vent. It can be whatever you have that you may have had because of privilege. How can I share this part of my privilege and leverage it so that other people can have more access to opportunities? Because of course, all the opportunity out there is equal. What people don't see is that we don't have access to it. One of the things I tweeted was that thing that you're doing that your one Black friend okayed for you to do even though all the Black people online or hundreds of Black people have said it's not cool. If your friend is lying to you to save your friendship, stop putting them in that position into your own research. You're sitting there, you're singing a song, it has an N word in it, and you're sitting there going, Do I get to say it? It's just a word. Some of us are like, Go oh, it's just the song. If you're doing it with the soft A, without mind, just don't hit it really hard. Don't make a big deal out of it. And then some of us are like, No. Never, ever under any circumstances. I don't even use that word myself. Me personally, I don't say the word anymore. I always say the N word because everybody knows what word I'm talking about, and it's not just the curse word. And I don't feel like you should be treated like one. If it's not just a word for you
2: that that really says a lot right there, you cannot understand what that word implies or means. This does not apply if you have not heard it spoken to you directly and. In- Right. Right. I'm stumbling over words. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to say like, like basically, if it just seems like it's just a word to you, you're not getting it.
0: Yeah. Two words that will help people who listen to this podcast understand. We've taken back the word crip. But if somebody saw you and called you a cripple, you'd be pissed off, right? If you're a woman and somebody called you a bitch and you don't know them like that, you would be pissed off. There are words that you can call people where there's no equivalent. Words have weight and that Mm -hmm. word has centuries behind it. It's telling
2: that we're subhuman. You talked about opportunity and some opportunities being behind a wall. And mm-hmm. Trevor Noah wrote an incredible book called I'm Born a Crime. And there was one section that hit mm-hmm. me in the gut. And that was when he was talking about how someone sold him a piece of equipment that he was able to build an entire business off of. And he said something yeah. to the effect of when you're talking about like when you teach a man to fish, he eats for yeah. forever. Yeah. If you do, well, either he, either the fish, man, he eats for a day. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, but it's really a good step to give him at least a fishing rod. I was hoping you you could expand on that
0: one. Without a fishing rod, is he supposed to catch fish with his hands? Even if he can, do you know how long that skill takes in relation to using a fishing rod? That's exactly how to describe opportunity. I have a lot of things to say about Trevor Noah. All good.
2: One of the things that struck me about his book is that he's lived Mm -hmm. at the intersection of so many things. Just like right on the edges of so many different things. And he's an amazing mm-hmm. bridge builder because of it. He understands almost yeah. coming from in a place that he almost gets lonely, but mm-hmm. he's able to see so many different things that he can explain something to people in a way that like a whole bunch of different people can digest.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we're missing as Americans. I think more Americans should travel to different states and just outside their communities, even in their own state. Just walk down the street in a community where you don't live, exposing yourself to other cultures, whether you do it locally or internationally because you have the privilege to be able to travel the world. It helps you see other points of view in a way that you can't sit in your house or just live in, in your community or just being around other people like yourself.
2: And if you are like, you know, bedbound, the library is an incredible resource. Uh, reading other authors that are from mm-hmm. different
0: cultures or different socioeconomic classes are really incredible ways yeah. to build empathy. Right. There's groups that you can join online. For example, there's a site that will let you learn languages from other people. There's sites that will match you anonymously with another person. You can be pen pals. So there's bed-bound options, are, well, house-bound and bed-bound options.
2: You are watching everything that's going on. You're watching the riots. You're watching the protests. You're watching all of this from your home from bed, as a lot of us yeah. cannot go out. And you cannot go out. What are you doing that
0: we can emulate, that you're able to be a part of things? The first thing I do when I know there's going to be unrest is I contact my local community organizations. I find out who is doing the work in the area for all of the different things that are happening. You can do a lot of them from home. People call it slacktivism because they don't understand that 30 years ago, starting a petition was a very difficult process, and then actually getting people to sign was a nightmare. And so now we have a different type of power. So people who like slacktivism, so it can kind of take your power away from you and say, "Oh, don't do that. It doesn't matter. It matters. All of it matters." Getting the petition signs and circulated matters, being an information dissemination expert matters. Just a person who just spreads information. That is critical to all movements. We as disabled people have an actual advantage in that we can be useful in organizing and spreading and monitoring information. It's one of the weaker parts of American activism, period, not to speak of African-American activism is that we're just not connected to the information that we should be. And if the connections that we do have are not organized. If you look at something like what Imani did, which was disabled people for Black lives, she's seen resources where, okay, well, here's things that you can do for home. Let's put it in this hashtag. Here's resources for people in the march. Let's put it in this hashtag. So they're all organized in one place. And it's all things that are accessible to disabled people. You can be the person who says, I'm going to go through all of that stuff, and then I'm going to put all that stuff over here. There's going to be problems during the uprisings where you will see incidents of brutality against bystanders. Or we have noticed recently that the people starting the riots were non-African American people. And now the press is starting to pay attention to that. But it wasn't until people started collecting that information into threads and saying, listen, this wasn't just one isolated incident. It wasn't just that one reporter on CNN who got taken in by the cops. It was these guys in this local news and this place seeing all of it in one thread changed people's minds. The point is the hundreds of George Floyd incidents that are happening to us where no one dies and no one had a camera and no one else was there. It's the hundreds and thousands of Amy Cooper incidents out there that are happening at work, where we take our children out. When you go around in Texas, they open carry and they have no problem pretending like they're pointing their gun at your child. People get shot in traffic incidents. It, I call it death by a thousand paper cups once I heard that expression because individually, when we tell you about them, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. It's like, oh, that's too bad. Racism again, dang, yeah, my cat got stuck in a tree and it's just like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> we get into these conversations where we think we're swapping stories about problems, but it's like, we have the regular right problems that you do and then we have an extra layer. That's what people don't really seem to understand is that extra layer of invisible weight that we have. I have all these extra versions because I'm a Black person and I try to describe them to you and you might think that you get it, but you just really don't get it, even though I'm telling you about it. It's just something about having that image forced to everybody at the same time that I think really woke up most of the country that this is a serious problem. And it's happening constantly, and we've been this is why we're talking about it and crying about it and marching about it all the time, is that that's how casually it's done too. They say they feared for their lives, they usually didn't. It's usually the conspiracy, the brotherhood of the police department covering it up, which is another issue. What are we going to do about the police departments? That's something else that we really need, the participation of the white community to help us solve? To make my point, I'm going to go into a little bit of history. The first bodies that were convened to police were for runaway slaves. They were to round up runaway slaves and protect their property from Native Americans who were all thought to be people who wanted to steal their stuff, which America stole their lands. So they started with these two perceptions. That's how it all began. Those slave patrols became official bodies, and those official bodies became police departments. They were there to control the Black population. That was their job. And at that time, the Black population was property. We are the capital that American capitalism is founded on. We were the original capital, and the state has never updated that idea in its structure as it has been built. So the police department and all these structures in America are still treating us like we are property and that we lack the language to really express that. My degrees in African American studies, I spent four years digging through this stuff and learning the history and understanding the culture and learning world history because they don't teach us world history. They just teach us American history and seeing all of this in context. And once I get all got out of that then I can speak on those issues and we keep it out of schools. Most people don't know that that's how police departments were founded or why they exist. They think that they're there to protect and serve peoples. They're there to protect and serve property and the people who own property and the more property that you own, the more the police department that you own, no matter what part of the country that you're from. With that idea in mind and with the idea that we're thought to be still. Treated by the state, especially the police department, as property that needs to be controlled. You add in the fact that nobody has this perception, but you have the people who are being patrolled because we need to be controlled, according to them. They're patrolling our area. If I watched you for 24 hours, I would catch you making a mistake, no matter who you are. So if they were patrolling the white areas like they patrol our areas, they would find the same things. They just don't patrol you like they patrol us, which is one of the reasons why we try to move out of Black areas and not to get away from our own kindness, to get away from the patrolling. So we have this whole situation. And then you add in the fact that there's an overlap, which has been known. If you go to hatewatch.org, they have all this information. PBS did a story about it in 2016, about how for 10 years, The government has had sufficient evidence to show that most of the police departments have a huge overlap in their population between white nationalist organizations and their rolling staff. Not just the administration, not just the management, the people who are walking the beat, the detectives. Imagine that you're surrounded by people from another culture in your job. You're going to adopt ideas from that culture. Those ideas from that culture are going to make it into that organization, especially if it's already set up to ex- be accepting to those ideas. You have these good cops who want to do the right thing, but they're in this environment where it's either the brotherhood of silence or it's running into administrative problems and trying to report things or somebody being able to buy their way out of problems with wealth. You don't know, think about why our community is so rejecting of the police only takes 40 weeks to become a police officer at the most the longest training program that I've ever seen is 40 weeks it's usually around six months with that little bit of training and this huge weight of the history of the department it's no wonder we're having classes with the police department they're designed to treat us a certain way whether they want to or not then about 15 20 years ago. All this military equipment that they're making that serves us because our military is way too big. That military equipment, where's it going to go? That's the insult to the police department. So, what are they going to do with that stuff? You saw them in the right here. You saw them in all of the stuff head to toe when our nurses and our doctors can't even get face masks. Every officer had a face mask, but we can't give them to doctors and nurses. So, we have a resource problem, we have a structure problem we have a culture problem with the police department. We need to defund them. They're being funded with our tax dollars. Now, the problem is a lot of people are going to lose jobs behind that. But if they are white nationalists infiltrating our police departments and now those same white nationalists are turning against the other white people who are defending us, what reason is there left to still have those people in those jobs? If a person's a good police officer They'll probably get hired by the new organization or because they'll be able to preach, I have no history of connection with any white nationalist organization, especially once they put white nationalist organizations back on the domestic terror. That's why Steve Bannon was on the National Security Council in 2017. That was the one thing he was there for. Take all the white nationalist groups that President Obama and I believe President Bush put on watch list and take them out. Because once they're on federal watch lists, they're free to operate however they want to. That's part of why the rise in violence after Trump was so high. And then who's going to police them? They dismantled the Justice Department initiative that Barack Obama put together in order to get the police officers to have oversight. At this point in time, if they wanted to, they can at any time march the National Guard down the street and decide that we're all prisoners in our own homes. They currently have that power. They didn't use it when we needed to shelter in place for the coronavirus. They had no problem using it against innocent bystanders and peaceful protesters. We need you as white people to help us figure out what can we do besides police departments and how can we start it? And how can we start making that transition right now? Because. They test these oppression tactics out on us, and then it widens the rest of the country. Black people had the have some crisis two years before it ever got to white America. Racism hurts everybody. The oppression is just being tested on us. It's just like ableism. They make it so you can't get in the building. They make it so they can try to control your vote. And then they move on to like people who are visibly disabled. And they moved to the invisibly disabled. And oh, whether you have diabetes or you have a thyroid problem or you have a back problem, you can't go to the doctor or have insurance, for Christ's sake. I went through that. My medical bills were higher than my mortgage. And it was, uh, it was excruciating. But on the other hand, here comes Obamacare. Right before I found out that I had cancer. At the time, I felt like I was dying. I was able to go to the doctor and have... The entire thing, because of my income level, covered by the state of Maryland. I never even got a bill. They saved my life. I would have died because I wouldn't have been able to afford to be alive. Do you ever think about that concept for able people that we can't afford to be alive? It's ridiculous. I just wanted to amplify a
2: person that we both really, really adore as you're talking about the inability to get what is needed and the paywalls. I wanted to amplify Tiara. We did a two-part series with her. But one of the things that struck me so hard is how much I want that woman to become a lawyer. She wants to be a public defender. But to take the bar is thousands of dollars. So there's this huge paywall on getting your law degree. Getting yeah. the bar, you have
0: to have study materials. This is hard. Yeah, the <laughs> privilege of not having to work while you study. Yes, There's yes. So and many the, things that go into it.
2: And, yeah. uh, and the thing is, is we have these paywalls behind getting someone to be able to be in a position where they can change things. So right. she can change things as a public defender. She could move up. She could become a judge. And what an amazing judge that woman would make. And she, she would change lives. Right. But she had yeah. the money to do this? This? We're the
0: problem with the way that America is going right now. You know, it's not just that they're stealing all of our money. It's they're buying democracy. American capitalism is. Based on. Slavery, because we were original capital. American democracy is based on freedom. How can you have freedom and capitalism at the same time? They're designed to explode when mixed, and now we're mixing them when people say oh i don't think you should begrudge people it's okay to have billionaires okay well let me ask you this who polices billionaires they can buy the police they can buy judges they can buy countries <laughs> how is a person allowed to have enough money and homelessness and then choose not to do it There's a big insincerity from the wealthy people who have stepped forward. There's 18,600 billionaires in in America. There's a little over 600 billionaires. If 10% of them took the surplus money that they got from their tax breaks, they could even things out. If they were really sincere about it and they pulled all that money together, along with the billionaires who would have a a bigger portion to pay they could send checks to every adult in america i feel like there's a real insincerity about the whole oh yeah i got too much taxes back this is terrible on the one hand i think it's great that some of them are coming out but it's just like with the celebrities on this uprising issue we know that you guys have millions of dollars because as consumers we gave them to you so why wouldn't you circle back and give them back to us bail protesters out. Just quietly go and bail the people out of jail who get arrested in these protests. Get in touch with a reporter. Talk about the uprising. Talk about the people who are getting hurt. Talk about the local reporters that are getting blasted in the face with tear gas for doing their jobs. There's supposed to be no closer relationship. And there is in institutions between the local cops and the local police. And then all of a sudden, these people who've known each other are shooting people in the face with tear gas. and doesn't make them sense. That overlap is causing an issue. I wanted to talk just
2: for a second about companies and their Mm -hmm. activism and who's doing a good job. I saw it this morning on Twitter and Nickelodeon surprised me. Please look it up and tell me what you think, because like I said, I feel like I don't have really much of a space in this conversation except to listen to you and what you're saying. But as far as what I was seeing companies do, I was seeing a lot of signaling like, hey, we care. We care. We're doing yeah. something. We're giving a million dollars of our three trillion dollars. And then seeing Clodian, who did a nine minutes of silence and focus on saying to make parents start talking to their children about inequality. And of course, there's a lot of pushback. I was shocked and I was really, for me personally, very
0: it very much felt like it was a brave thing to do. They don't know what the pushback is going to be and how they're going to be held responsible for that. But on the other hand, they're operating from a pretty se- secure position. What are you going to do, de- cancel your cable? Everyone so, keeps talking about canceling Disney and
2: it's like, they're mad that they have gay people. They're like, we're canceling, we're done. Yeah, yeah. And they're fine. But I was just person. curious who you saw that you felt like were, was doing a good job using their privilege for um, mm-hmm. what's going on so that we can like look at supporting or amplifying that.
0: Yeah, conversationally, I think Ice-T's done a good job. But as far as talking back to people, and especially his white fans, because he's found on a very mainstream show, people don't understand that, one, he used to be in the Army, and that, two, his lyrics in his early rap career were very hardcore. Also, Trevor Noah, of course, if you get a chance to see that two-part thing that he did, about the contract that people have with society and how they respond when that contract is broken. It's incredible. And it's very clear. I like that the music industry is having a blackout day, but I think that it would have been even better if they stayed on, focused on black artists and then donated all the money from that day.
2: If I'm understanding, one of the things Mm -hmm. that we can suggest for people as we're talking about things that people can do is to create a movement where for one day we focus on Black artists. We focus on Mm -hmm. Black writers. We focus on Black music and that we use those dollars to pay directly to Black voices.
0: Yeah, I would even say there's 25 to 26 working days a month. Black people, about 13 percent of the population. Why can't we do that on every 13th and every 26th of the month? Perpetually. If they will not even out the inequality, let's try to start doing it ourselves. But there's a lot of things that we can do together as a block to change what the country is and what direction it moves into. Starting with local things like we funded the police departments. We have a lot more power on the local level than we have on the national level. And that affects us more. I was thinking of a video that I wanted to tweet that talked about how they did this in Ferguson. And I think it's an example for all communities to... Look at this and realize how much power we have on the local level to change the institutions. And then once we have the local level changed, we can use that to change the rest of the country because all of the politicians go from being on the city council to being in the state legislature to being representatives of the senators, and then they become or go into the executive branch where they serve presidents. So if we start on the local level and not let them get into the door in the first place, mm. and we control their point of entry and pay more attention to civics, then these problems won't be coming up because we'll have vetted them from early on. And yes, it will take 20 years for like this whole vision to complete. But where will we be in 20 years if we don't start now? It really shocked me with this movement
2: because I was thinking if there was one group of people that need to not be quiet. There's a lot of silencing. And I was wondering if there's a possibility to switch this for a day where anyone who is not a part of this community sits down, shuts up, and retweets and reads and spends this time listening to the voices and really doing some work and looking at their boards. Is your board very pale? Is your social media management really pale? Just spending a day of doing work and listening to voices. If you're the head of a company, invite your workers in and listen. Is there a way to do a day like that?
0: Yeah. And I think we should not only do it one day. It should be periodic. I say the 13th because it was moving the 13th about the 13th Amendment and the fact that ooh, slavery is not completely abolished and still legal in prison. I've been pointing that out to people for years and... When she made that documentary, it was stunning, the clarity with which she expressed the ideas and talks to all of the people and the scholars who deal with this issue. But that's one of the things that will give it weight is the fact we're percent of the population, the 13th of the month. It makes it easy to remember every month on the 13th, let's focus on Black voices. I do want to just get back really quickly to the police force because I know okay. that
2: there's going to be a lot of people who will misunderstand what you were saying. I don't want to rephrase or put words in your mouth. I just want to make no sure problem. that I'm clear. Is yeah. that you're not talking about we don't have anything that can help if something goes wrong, if something illegal goes wrong? You're talking about creating something that will not systematically police one group of people that will be held accountable. You're not saying we just don't have law. We just have anarchy. We're not calling for anarchy. I'm not
0: saying anarchy. I'm not saying don't have departments tasked with the responsibility of protecting us. I'm saying they need to be restructured and the current structure is one that we can't just rebuild on. Then if we want to circle to medical racism here's some of the stuff that I know that is backed by research. Not theoretically, not philosophically, not maybe. Due to racism, not race, racism, our babies are born smaller. Due to race, we receive less medical care for pain and are not believed. We experience lower birth rates. We experience miscarriages because people don't believe us. The stress of racism is affecting the biology of our children. The stress of racism is affecting All of our other health issues, I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but look at me, I don't look pale, do I? People see me and they do not believe that I'm sick and they do not believe that I have cancer. Right now, I'm asymptomatic, so it's not like in any time in the next 20 years, I'm going to die of this particular disease. But at the same time, this is a disease that I will frequently have to go on and off chemo for for the next couple of decades we are invisibly disabled people, we have those problems where they don't want to listen to us already, then you add on the fact that you're Black, it's miserable. They found some studies, doctors feel that Black people in general are in less pain, that we don't feel it the same way. They have presuppositions about us when when we come into the emergency department, even if they've had training to do otherwise, even though sometimes they are also Black people. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the medical racism area.
2: I wanted to also talk about, as a child of the 80s and 90s, where there's this big idea of being colorblind. Yeah. I don't see color. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was hoping you could expand on the
0: good intention, stupidest fuckness of that all. Yeah, it, it's a fucked concept. Play the door because colorblind, that's kind of ableist. The intention of colorblindness was good. It was saying that, okay, I don't see this thing about you that I think is bad.
1: But Mm compare and
0: see why people back just say the word disabled. The supposition there is that having a disability and being disabled is bad. So therefore, I have to say that you are a person with a disability. So I see your humanity first. Why am I less human if you talk about my disability? Doesn't make any damn sense. It was the same thing with colorblindness. You saying that you're colorblind means you're not seeing a very special part of me. People will say, oh, well, why would you want people to see your Blackness? I thought Black was just the color. On one level, my Blackness, does that make me different from you? But because people believed that it make me a bit different from you, that pushed me together with the rest of the people like me, and that formed a culture. We had that culture before we came here and have it stripped of us. So our ability to reculturize ourselves around our various skin colors instead of our cultural groups is oppressive. You're telling us that you are refusing to see part of our identity that you forced us to have. Mm, That's what's wrong with colorblindness. Our color is not a negative that needs to be transcended. It's the biological fact. I have never thought of it from that perspective
2: before. It made it harder for me because I felt like, oh, but I'm just like you. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. I didn't experience the trauma you experienced. I mm-hmm. didn't see the police as bad uh, or as someone who could hurt me until right. like I got older. And it was a sexual issue that I was afraid of. The right. That wasn't sure. the same thing. That's not the same drama. Right. When my wife at the time told me that she was scared of police officers, blew my worldview in such right. a way that I couldn't hear her. Because mm-hmm. I thought colorblind, we've all had the same experience.
0: Right. And That
2: is not fucking true. I didn't have that right. experience. I think that this idea of colorblind creates this false sense of, I already understand you and I don't. Yeah. I need to listen to you.
0: Right. It sets you up to feel like you know more than you do. It mm. sets you up to feel like you empathize more than you do. And it ends up trapping you in this idea that these things don't matter. If they don't matter, I can ignore them. And if you're ignoring them, how do you see when the other person is in trouble because of the thing that you're ignoring? You can't see it because you're being blind to their color. How do you see the value in that person? Their culture invented jazz, was integral to hip hop. How do you see that if you don't see color?
2: And made rock and roll a uh, <laughs> scientific achievements that are not yeah. being properly credited. I mean, um, from
0: the green light to shoes. Everybody wears shoes. Nobody knows it was Black people who made it so that shoes could be mass produced. We could be integrating all that history until everything hasn't really happened. Because think about it. If we knew the history of police departments will be in this situation right now, If we knew the history of how Black bodies were used for medical experience so gynecology came to be because of experimentation on Black women with no anesthesia, think of how much you hate everything that has to do with the gynecology visits that you have to have. I think how much worse it must have been for the women that had to be picked apart to learn all of those things. We could have had a totally different experience if it wasn't created in cruelty. I was just thinking from a Black storyteller perspective, I could be wrong.
2: I could be in a very warm and fuzzy place in the world, but I really believe that one of our best ways of moving forward is through storytelling. How do we get more voices out? How do we get more
0: TV shows? How do we get more Black voices? How do we amplify? I think the key is that we have to demand it. We have to have things like, what do they have? They call them inclusion writers. We have to get demand that white Hollywood start to include inclusion writers in their contract. I In the advertising world, that's what's my job. Right? And like,
2: how the fuck has no one decided that we need better hiring practices? That goes through so many
0: people saying yes. <laughs> right. But then the, the whole thing with the tri- hiring process is mm. people assume that hiring was fair in the first place. That it's a meritocracy mm. and it never has been. That's what affirmative action was invented to correct. It was invented to correct Equal opportunity and access to employment. There's no law anywhere that says if you have a black person or a white person for a job, hire a black person. That's fiction. It's complete fiction. And if you go and just read few simple st- sentences that tell you that that John F. Kennedy wrote to tell you what affirmative action is, it will become completely clear in your head that it's just the desire to have a representative population in government. And then private practice has taken that idea once it became law in the 80s to extending that idea to the rest of employment. That's all it is. Give more people a chance for the job, not necessarily hire them. The other problem with meritocracy is that it assumes that women and Black people and Latino people and First Nation people and lesbians and gay people and trans people, they are making the assumption that we're not good enough. They're making that assumption that we don't have merit. But in fact, we have to be better at our jobs just to get them. Think that the Democratic lineup pretty much proved that shit. Everything has been taken away from us. And this is where the COVID thing comes in. So you wonder why people would protest during a pandemic like when their population is most likely to die. Because they feel like if they're going to die, they're going to die anyway. These are the essential workers that were already out there. These are the people who are nurses. These are the people who are doctors. These are the people who are bringing your fast food. They already think that they're already infected, probably. And they're going to be out with other people who are already infected, probably. That's what it is.
2: If I understand correctly, what you're saying is that the Black community is at a place where we were already
0: going to die. Our death needs to mean something. Our voices need to mean something. We feel that if this thing ravages our community, and it is currently ravaging our community, if it's going to get us, we might as well go out winging. I'm talking about the people who went out and protested because they've had everything taken away from them. First, you have to be locked in your house. Then you lose your job. Then you lose your health insurance. You find out the cobra's fucking joke. And then you're like, okay like like Trevor Noah said, but they haven't been pushed far enough because we believe we have this contract with society and we don't want to dishonor this contract. So we don't just start looting immediately that we feel like we've lost everything. We think it's the American way. We're going to work hard. We'll move uncle in. We're just going to move everybody together and we'll try to survive this grief. Imagine how many times in a row you see your people dying and then The first two times, the entire country is seeing people dying. The entire country is seeing this Amy Cooper lady and seeing how our lives are put in jeopardy. You don't want to exaggerate and say daily, but for some of it, it is daily. You feel the type of way. They have this much information and they still aren't seeing what we're saying. And then the nine minute video comes out, which I still haven't seen because I have seen it live. And a lot of people like me, whether we come from rich neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods, we've seen it live. And we do not want to see it on our timeline. If you're going to post those videos, you have to put some kind of warnings on them. You have to make sure that it's all the way down in space. If there's a way to set it, not to autoplay, do that. You're not going to be inundated all day with this image of a person that looks like you dying, you know? And I started having that policy with my mobile devices ever since there was this time that I saw this man, this video of this man get attacked by a police that looks exactly like my uncle. I actually thought it was him, but he died. It just fucked me up for like two days. So it's just, we can't be looking at people who look like us getting fucked up in social media. That's where we come to escape this stuff. So white people, I know you're trying to spread awareness. Tweet the article that has the video in it. DM the video to people that you think won't watch it unless they see it. That's just another note that I wanted to add that I feel is really important for the mental health of Black people. Because there isn't a treatment for the effects of the basis of There's no standard treatment. There's nothing that we can do when we go to therapy. Like, I remember I've suffered some sexual abuse in my childhood, and there's that book, The Courage to Heal. Where even if you don't want to go out and get therapy traditionally because you don't believe in that, which is okay, that's some people's choice. Even if you don't believe in getting medication for your depression, there are other tools that you can use to kind of heal yourself from that. There's no heal yourself from racism texts, really. You know, there's nothing for what one doctor calls post-traumatic slavery system. There's nothing for that she calls it post-traumatic slavery disorder. There's nothing for that. Not only are we constantly getting traumatized and suffering from the direct effects of racism on top of our other mental health issues, I have anxiety and depression, then to see that trauma just out of nowhere, it's a lot. Do you have trouble finding Black therapists? I don't have trouble finding them. I have trouble finding the right one. there's this belief that Black people are monoliths. If I can find a couple of Black therapists, I'm okay. Contrary to popular belief, especially the people over 50, Black America can be very conservative. They're church-going people. They don't prove homosexuality. They don't understand what transgender is. They don't know what a non-binary person is. They don't respect the labels of bisexuality. They don't have the same consciousness and understanding that to be fair, they came up in a different time. It's one thing when you can go to Harvard for what is today $8,600 a year. That's a different world than one where it's what, $100,000 now just for tuition. That was a completely different world where college was accessible in this respectable American dream life that they went through. And for us, it's not. So if you get a therapist who believes in that, it's not good for me. Mm. And then I also come from Nigerian culture. So a lot of the things that, are, that have created the situation that induced my trauma, that resulted in me being abused, and that trigger my PTSD combined to give me anxiety and depression, they're not problems that every Black American has. I have that child of immigrants things to deal with. And then I have the child of African immigrants to deal with. And then I have the special thing about how people think Nigerians are all criminals. And it's just a lot. I'm the oldest one of my grandparents' children, which is a big deal. I'm going to be the next matriarch. I have not remarried. I don't intend to. That brings a lot of issues. I don't have own children. I can't just get a black therapist is what I'm trying to
2: mm. say. It's hard. I'm sorry. And I was, that was very clumsy of me on how I was phrasing wow, that. My apologies.
0: Great question. People never ask stuff like that. And it's so great that you even thought asked. I was just thinking, like, I guards. couldn't possibly yeah. understand post-traumatic
2: slaves. So how would I possibly right. be a decent therapist for you? And then I was thinking, is there enough Black therapists that you'd be able to find the proper therapist right. who could begin to understand what you're dealing
0: with? Who specializes in this? Who's even given it a name? That's how I found out about it. She was the one who I learned stuff about the father of gynecology from. I watched one of her videos on YouTube. So I go back and see that she's on Twitter. And the first video on her Twitter feed is about the post-traumatic slavery disorder. That's how I found out about it. Imagine that. So how in the hell are white people going to find out about that? How is my black therapist going to even think to try to treat me for my racism when they are suffering from the same thing, you know? I just wanted to end up on an idea, and I want to know how we make
2: it happen. I love yes. the idea that the thirteenth would be a mm-hmm. day to amplify Black voices, to amplify spending towards Black artists, Black writers, and I love the idea of the thirteenth is a day that that business owners sit down, listen to their Black staff. How do we make this happen? Yeah. How do we make that, that days like this aren't about silencing anyone's voice? Mm-hmm. That the days like this are about putting money in people's pockets. And amplifying their voice and what they need from society. How do we make this go? You
0: know way more about social media than I do. I learned on the road. I learned this from bring back our girls hashtag. And you hmm. can start with this little thing and you don't think of anything's going to happen. We have this power for social media. We can start small with a small event. We could do it the 13th of this June. It should be Juneteenth in June and then every other month be on the 13th. And have that be the celebration day and then convert what we do there to a movement. Because once you get people interested in events, once you get people interested in something and they see how wonderful and fulfilling it is, then we can get it to become a regular thing. For my days in marketing, that the hurdle is getting people to accept it the first time and realize they love it. Once they know that they love something, they will sell it to themselves. You won't have
2: to. Excellent. Well, we are going to sign off. I am near the Silicon Valley, so I'm hoping some of the tech people will hear what we're talking about and help push this idea of the 13th being a time. This is one of the most important things we've done as a podcast. I cannot thank you enough for coming on.
1: To find out more about today's episode, including show notes, transcripts, and more, please visit invisiblenotbroken.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the show by heading over to our Patreon or by sharing these episodes. We are non advertising and our growth is thanks to you, listeners. Thank you to our host, Monica, and our guest, Tinu, for an incredible conversation. This episode was edited by me, Alice Fan. Last but not least, be kind, be gentle, and be badass.